Thank you, team. Well, let me ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles once again to Revelation 14. For our call to worship this morning, we read from Psalm 18, and the heading of the psalm reads, A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, there's a tradition in the Old Testament that when God wonderfully delivers his people, they sing. They break out in song to the Lord, and they celebrate his glorious deliverance. We saw that in chapter 13 of the Psalms, as I just read a moment ago, uh, as David's delivered from uh, from Saul. We see it in Exodus chapter 15, right after the children of Israel had crossed through the Red Sea on dry land and been delivered from Pharaoh and his armies. They broke out in song, rejoicing that God had given them a glorious triumph over their enemies. And so, here in Revelation chapter 14, we find the saints in heaven singing to the Lord a new song. It's a song of triumph over their enemies. It's a song of rejoicing in their Redeemer. Now, if you recall, if you were here last Sunday night, and uh, I I hope you'll come morning and evening. And, and stay current with both Pastor Mark and me in our sermons. Uh, but in chapter uh, 13, John describes two terrible beasts, a beast out of the earth and a beast out of the sea. The beast out of the sea, uh, I believe, is that, that inspiration. It's a, it, it, it's a, a being from the, from the enemy who inspires governments to persecute believers through all the ages. But I believe in the final day, There will be a a, a rising up where the beast leads the kings of the earth and their armies against the Lamb and the hosts of heaven. And in fact, it says this beast out of the sea makes war. He's allowed to make war against the saints of God and even allowed to conquer them. And it tells us that all those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life will worship this beast. And then we see the beast uh, out of the earth. That's the beast out of the sea. The beast out of the earth, I believe, represents false religion, the spirit-inspiring counterfeit of the truth. He has two horns like a lamb impersonating Jesus, and yet he has the voice of a dragon. He influenced the, the inhabitants of the earth to worship this first beast rather than worshiping the one true God. And he forces men to get this mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead. And we said that that that, that mark is an indication of ownership, of allegiance. It's not a physical, visible mark, not a physical mark, but it's a symbol of ownership. It's, It's a symbol of allegiance to their ruler. And at the end of chapter 13, we read, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I said last week, there's so much sensationalism about the book of Revelation and about the end times, and this, this, this number 666 is supposed to strike fear in the hearts of people. It's six is one short of seven, which is God's number of perfection. And repeated three times shows it's just, 
It's this inability to quite get there. It's, it, it's a number of failure. I told my community group last week, it's, it's like uh, going around having this L, loser, on your forehead. I am, I am allied to the loser, the one who is doomed, and I am utterly devoted to him and devoted and destined for his doom. And yet, for the present time, this, these beasts are wreaking havoc on the earth. But here, startlingly, we come to chapter 14 and we see this total change. We see the Lamb the Lord Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion with his fair army, 144,000. So John tells us, first of all, that he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the redeemed saints. Verse 1, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name on and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we've said before that Satan is an imposter. He is is, uh, jealous of the glory of God and wanting it for his own. And so he, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He, he, he is a counterfeiter of the truth and of the glory of our Lord. He presents himself as a rival to the one true God, deceiving the world that he is actually in control. And so the beast of the sea and the beast out of the earth combine with the dragon and they, they make this unholy trio which are, as it were, a counterfeit trinity. And I want to point out a number of contrasts between what we read in these five verses and what we read in chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 11 tells us the beast out of the earth has horns like a lamb but the voice of a dragon. Whereas we see the lamb, the Lord Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. Verse 11 tells us in chapter 13, the beast comes out of the earth and he wreaks havoc on the earth. But verse, chapter 14, verse 1 tells us that the Lamb, Lord Jesus, is standing again on Mount Zion, which is in heaven. Verse 12 in chapter 13, it tells us the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast. But in chapter 14, we see that the, the, the saints, the 144,000, are singing a new song to the Lamb. Chapter 13, verse 18, the beast number is 666, the number of man which signifies incompleteness and failure. But the children of God, the saints, are numbered 144,000, a number of perfection and completeness. The inhabitants of the earth, verse 16 in chapter 13, they receive this mark of the beast on their hand, right hand and on their forehead, whereas the saints have the name of the Lamb and of the Father written on our foreheads. Chapter 13, the beast deceives those who dwell on the earth, whereas in the saints there is no lie found in our mouths. So the contrast between the enslaving and and crushing work of the enemy and the redeeming work of Christ could not be any clearer. So we see this this image, this, this, this vision of Jesus standing in triumph on Mount Zion. Now, remember, Revelation is a story. It it gives us symbolic visions. It's not to be taken with the kind of literalness that a narrative, say the Gospels, would be taken. So, Mount Zion is symbolic for the present-day heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews contrasts Mount Zion with Mount Sinai. And we looked at Mount Sinai last Sunday morning when Pastor Mark preached in chapter 19 of Exodus where there was thunder and rumbling and and smoke and no one was allowed to approach. 
It was saying, stay away or you will die. Whereas in Hebrews 12, it says, you have come not to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. That was Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Stay away. Danger. The holiness of God will crush you. But Hebrews 12 goes on to say, rather, you've come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. That's the 144,000. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Again, the saints we're looking at this morning. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the scene that John is describing for us here is the heavenly Jerusalem, it's Mount Zion. Now, if you're in the first or second grade, how many first and second graders do I have this morning? A handful of you? Okay. I understand, I heard from somebody, uh, namely Mrs. Howell, that you talked about heaven in Sunday school this morning, right? As the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Well, here we find these saints enjoying the fulfillment of the promises of God. It gives us a picture of the Lord Jesus standing there, as I said, with his fair army. We'll see where that comes from in a few moments. But with Jesus is these 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. We were introduced to them back in chapter 7. <coughs> it's the saints on earth who were sealed and protected from the enemy. It didn't mean that they would not be martyred. They could be, but they would still overcome but they were sealed with his spirit. They could not be defeated. They could not be drawn away. They were God's possession. His name, the mark of the Lord Jesus, is written on their foreheads. Again, that's not literal. We don't go around and, oh, you've got that, you've got, I am Jesus's on your forehead. You've got that right tattoo. I know you're a Christian. No, it's not a literal, visible mark. It's, it's, that, it's that seal of the Spirit that marks God's ownership and protection of us. And those 144,000 who were yet on the earth in chapter 7 were still subject to the trials and pains of this life and to the attacks of the enemy. And deliverance was for them a promised hope. But here in Revelation uh, 14, the 144,000 are pictured in heaven. They are saints triumphant. Their hope has been fulfilled. They're on Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, standing with the Lamb. And John, so John is described for us. This is what he sees. But then he tells us what he hears. The saints are singing a new song in heaven. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice or a sound. could be translated either way. I heard a voice from heaven. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. This voice, this sound that John hears, it's not one single singer. It's the voice, the sound of a great multitude of saints in heaven. Now, 
It's awesome. It defies description. John compares it to the roar of rushing waters. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, or even just a really, really huge waterfall, I'm not talking about little trickles, you know. We got some trickles around here, but we have some really big ones too. And I have some that I love because I love waterfalls. But if you've ever been down to Niagara Falls, and they have this, uh, this, this uh, path or this it's really like a gangplank you can go on. They dress you up in, in slickers, and you go down, and you get into the mist of the waterfall, and the sound is deafening. If you're going to talk with someone, you have to try to shout over them because virtually the only thing you can hear is the roar of the water. That's what John says this sound was like. And the sound of loud thunder. He's not talking about this distant rumbling far off. He's talking about as if lightning were striking in your backyard and the thunder rattles your teeth. I'm kind of strange. I love sitting on my back porch during thunderstorms. Now, you know, the porch keeps me dry. And I've never been struck by lightning yet. I don't think I will be there. But the louder the better. Because it reminds me of the power and awesome glory of our God. The voice of the Lord shakes the trees, it tells us. So I love listening to that thunder. Well, John says the the sound of this voice is like loud thunder. But then he changes the metaphor entirely, and he says, the voice of her was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now, when you think of loud, jarring music, you might think of a crash of cymbals. You might think of the blast of a trumpet. You don't think of the strumming of a harp. You think of sweetness and beauty. I know we have a few harpists here this morning, and when I've heard you play, it's, it's soft and melodious and beautiful. And yet John says, the, the sound, the sweet sound of the harps will be just magnificently overwhelming. Dennis Johnson, Johnson, one of our commentators, says the voice has overpowering strength, but also heartbreaking sweetness. I would probably say heart-refreshing sweetness, but that's fine. It's the united voice of the Lamb's Army Choir accompanying their new song on harps. Now, if you look at chapter 15, just further down the page on my Bible, it says, I saw what appeared to be, verse 2, excuse me, 15-2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its images and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They've conquered that number 666 beast because, it, again, it's like a big loser, right? And they're standing there with harps bringing praise and honor and glory to, the God, to our God. The sound that John hears is majestic and it's powerful, and he tells us this sound is a, a new song, verse 3. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. It's interesting in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it's the four living creatures and the elders singing a new song before the Lamb. But now, the saints are singing the song before the four living creatures and before the angels, the hosts of heaven and before the Lamb. And it's interesting here, the entire redeemed church that is in heaven as this takes place is singing his praise. Now, I love hymns about heaven. We're going to close in a little bit with the sands of time, the sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, 
the fair, sweet morn I've longed for, the dawn, uh, whatever, awakes. I'm drawing a blank on the birds, that's okay. But there's the sweetness, the glory, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. I love songs about heaven. If you've heard Matt Foreman's uh, uh, arrangement of A Few More Years Shall Roll, I think we've sung it here a few times. It, 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 just, it just does something in my heart, powerful. But that, this, those songs are nothing compared to the new song that will be sung in heaven. When we have our Messiah sing along and we finish with, worthy is the lamb that was slain in the hallelujah chorus, it's glorious, but it's nothing compared to the new song that will be sung on that day in heaven. That new song is a song of redemption. As they sing to their lamb, their redeemer, the Lord Jesus. That's, I find this interesting too. Numerous times in the book of Revelation, we find John telling us, and they sang, and he gives us the words to the song. But he doesn't do that here. Do you notice that? He tells about the song. He tells how loud it is. He tells uh, that they used harps. He tells us who sang it, but he doesn't give us the words. And in fact, in verse 3, it tells us no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is a song sung only by the redeemed. Not even the angels could learn the song. Certainly not those who bore the mark of the beast, right? Richard Brooks says, only those who with a new heart can sing a new song. But here we have the saints. They've been delivered from this vicious attack of the beast, and they're singing songs of triumph, of deliverance, of praise to their, their Redeemer. It's the glorious fulfillment of everything Jesus had promised, and it has all come to pass. And so the song testifies of that glorious experience. Again, the angels can't sing it. It's only those who've been redeemed. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it speaks of the glories of the gospel, and it says things into which the angels long to look. We have an advantage over angels. Did you know that, Christian? We have an advantage the angels don't have. They don't know what it's like to be redeemed from sin because they don't have any. They don't know what it's like <clears throat> to be able to say, Jesus died to pay for me. They can't sing a song of deliverance. They've been preserved, which is glorious and wonderful, <clears throat> but we have a song of redemption, a song of deliverance. It's ours to sing. It's ours to experience. It's ours to revel about through endless ages. And so this song comes at John like the roaring of waterfalls, of, like the crash of loud thunder, and yet the sweetness of 10,000 harps. So John tells us what he sees, the lamb and his army, his fair army. He tells us what he hears, this glorious song. And now he describes the character of those 144,000. What are they like? Well, he tells us, first of all, they've been redeemed from the earth. In Revelation chapter 5, the new song that is sung there says, uh, Worthy are you, O Lord, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God for every tribe and language and people and nation. He has redeemed us. It's the very same word John uses here, ransom, redeem. He purchased us with his own precious blood. He, he, he paid that ransom price. Now, who, to whom did Jesus pay the ransom price? 
There are some who say, well, Jesus paid the devil so that he would let you go. Now, the Bible tells us we're bound in sin, that we're slaves of the enemy, Satan, but he doesn't get the ransom price. The ransom price is given to his father, whose wrath hangs over us. Jesus says in John chapter 3, whoever believes in him is is not, will not perish but have eternal life. But then he says, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We stand condemned already until we turn to the Lord Jesus and repent of our sins and flee to the cross. And so that ransom price is not paid to the enemy. It's paid to release us from the wrath of God. Satan held us in bondage. Satan called us slave to sin. But it's God who sets us free. And to say these have been set free, look at it. It says in verse 3, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. See, it's one thing to be set free from your bondage to sin. It's another to throw off your bonds to this mortal body and be redeemed from the earth and enter into eternal life. And that's where they are in heaven in glory. They're set free not only from that bondage from sin, but every vestige of the curse. They have loosed their bonds. And redemption's complete. It tells us, secondly, they're redeemed from the earth. Secondly, they have kept themselves pure, verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. Now, if you insist on a strictly literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, what do you have to conclude from this verse? You have to conclude that they're all men and they're all celibate. That's the description, but clearly it's symbolic, and it's simply speaking to our purity. All those who are redeemed from the earth. Remember the key. What's the key for understanding the book of Revelation? We have the same key that the first century saints have. It's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, adultery was compared to unfaithfulness to God. It, It signified unfaithfulness to God. It was called spiritual adultery. You remember in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea is called by God to go marry a prostitute. And Gomer, his wife, leaves him over and over and over again. And he keeps going back and finding her in the marketplace and buying her back and taking her to himself once again. In Hosea 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He is saying, I want your life to be an object lesson. That all who see look at you and say, what a fool to love such a wicked, unfaithful woman. And God is saying, you, Israel, are that woman. And I'm the one who's loving you in spite of your whoredom. So forsaking the Lord is is described in graphic language, the very worst kind of adultery. In Jeremiah chapter 3, would you turn with me there, please? Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 
Jeremiah 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. The heading there in the ESV Bible is the faithless Israel called to repentance. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? Pardon the graphic language. This is in the Bible. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. The northern kingdom rebelled, and God rejected them. And Judah, the southern kingdom, didn't learn from what they saw Israel do. Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. In pretense, she returned. She said, I'm drawing near to you with her mouth, but her heart was off somewhere else. And it's quite interesting here. In verse 9, it says, she's committing adultery with stone and tree. What that is talking about, it's a graphic way of saying she's bowing down to other gods. The first commandment that Pastor Mark will talk about tonight, have no other gods before me. And he describes the wickedness of Israel and of Judah, bowing down to stone, images made of stone and wood, committing adultery with stone and tree. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we find an allegory about unfaithfulness of Judah, or uh, the unfaithfulness of Jerusalem, and her spiritual wandering is, is compared to an insatiable lust. Verse 32 says, this adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Again, the people of God embracing idolatry. Even in the New Testament, James, in chapter 4, is, is asks the question, what causes quarrels and fights? It's because you're consumed with your own passions. You want, you don't, you don't get. And you devour one another. And he says this in verse 3 and 4, you ask and you do not receive because you ask, with wrong, ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We find the same emphasis in the book of Revelation numerous times. In chapter 2, that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, is seducing the servants of God to commit spiritual idolatry. He calls it sexual immorality, whether it was actually literally physical immorality or whether it was spiritual idolatry. We, we really can't say either one is a grievous sin against the Lord. In Revelation 17, verse 5, Babylon the Great contrasted with the Lord's people. Babylon the Great is called the mother of all prostitutes, whereas the people of God are often referred to as a chaste virgin. In Lamentations 3, or 2, verse 13, Israel is called the daughter of Jerusalem and virgin daughter of Zion. Jeremiah 13, verse 18, speaks of virgin Israel. Now, again, it's not that they were lifelong celibates. It was they were faithful to the Lord. And so the purity of those 144,000 is not simply referring to physical behavior. It involves that, certainly. But it's deeper. It's a spiritual faithfulness to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would. 
2 Corinthians 11, Paul is concerned about false apostles, false teachers. And he says, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So you see this language of relational fidelity, relational faithfulness, applying to faithfulness to the Lord or wandering after the enemy of our souls. So they're described as as those redeemed out of the earth, faithful to the Lord. It says, thirdly, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, which refers to our discipleship. You remember the initial call to discipleship was to deny yourself and take up your cross every day and to follow Jesus, to turn away from that life of going your own way. Uh, Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Repentance means we turn from going our own way and we turn and we follow the Lord Jesus wherever he may lead. We no longer live a life of pursuing our own desires, our own lusts, pursuing our own pleasures. So here we have these saints who have have denied themselves. They've, They've taken up the cross. They've followed in obedience to the captain of their salvation, even to the point of martyrdom in some cases. They follow Jesus wherever he goes. And then fourthly, it says, they are redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. In the Old Testament, first fruits refer to that portion of the harvest that was set aside and devoted wholly to the Lord as a thank offering. Now, you were free to to do as, as you saw best with the remaining, but the first fruits were his. And it was a grievous sin not to give the Lord his first fruits. And so the wording here says, you, they were purchased from mankind as first fruits to God. The rest of the harvest remains, is left to judgment. But these, these are the purchased possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're given to his Father. Jesus' name and his Father's name are written on their foreheads. They belong exclusively to him. And then fifthly, it says they are blameless, no lies, no deception, no hypocrisy, no duplicity. They are above reproach. They're blameless. And the emphasis of this verse is not that those who are in heaven never committed sins. No, they were redeemed from their sin. That's the glory of this description. It's the fulfillment of the work of Jesus Christ. They've been redeemed from their sin. They've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians 1, 4 says that he, has chose, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. He didn't choose us because we were holy and blameless. He chose us to make us holy and blameless. Romans eight twenty nine says he predestined us to conform us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. We were created in the image of God. When Adam and Eve were first created, they clearly and accurately and faithfully imaged or reflected the glory of God. Not his incommunicable attributes, but his communicable attributes. They reflected his glory, his image. But because sin entered, that image was defaced, it was marred, it was spoiled, it was distorted by sin. And yet we still are making a proclamation about God 
as image bearers. Unfortunately, oftentimes that proclamation is filled with inaccuracies. It's filled with distortions. It's, this is what God is like. And we distort what, by our lives and even by our lips at times, what God truly is like. But we're being conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. He redeemed us with his own precious word. By his Holy Spirit, he is at work in our lives, restoring that which was lost by sin. His holy character is being formed and shaped and molded into us, or in us, rather. And on that glorious day, that process of sanctification will be complete. Now, you've heard me say before, sanctification is a process. We're not done yet. We are semi-sanctified. We're half-baked, in a sense. But on that day, the bell rings, and we'll be done. We'll be complete will be perfect and blameless in the sight of our Lord. We will stand in the presence of our Lamb, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, blameless. And so, in chapter 7, we find the saints in heaven depicted as this great multitude clothed in white robes standing before the Lamb, which indicates the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to them, that the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is complete once and for all. Ephesians 5 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a bride that is holy and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is his work in us. That is what he is determined to do. Paul tells us in Philippians 1, 6, he, 6, he who began this good work will complete it until the day of Christ. So these saints described here in chapter 14, that work has been completed. All that Jesus came to purchase will have been fulfilled. Christian, this passage is talking about you. We're not there yet. We're still here. We're the 144,000 in Revelation 7. We're not gathered yet around the throne in the new Jerusalem, the time will come. The time will come if you're in Christ. You will stand with the Lamb, your Redeemer. You will love Him with a pure heart, a blameless heart, an undivided heart. One of the hymns about heaven, when this passing world is done, speaks of seeing Jesus as He is and loving Him with unsinning heart. Wouldn't that be amazing? I can remember in college, every night, uh, my roommate would pray, Lord Jesus, I love you. And immediately my thoughts would be, Lord, I don't love you nearly like I ought to. Because there's this conflict in my own heart. I'm sure he had it too. But he understood the grace of God better than I. But the day will come when you'll love him with a pure undivided heart. You will be able to sing a new song that no one else can learn unless they are part of the redeemed from the earth. You will share in his glory. And Christian, hear me, that should be a tremendous encouragement for you, whatever you may be facing right now. We have a beast, an enemy, who is at war. He's been given the authority to make war on us. Another beast who is deceiving seeking to seduce us away, to destroy us any way he can. If you're a Christian, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
The name of God and the name of the Lord Jesus are engraved on your forehead, as it were. You're his. And no one can snatch you out of the hand of our Lord. But it's still hard. And it's still wearying. That day will be a day of rest, a day of celebration, a day of unspeakable joy and glory. At his right hand will be pleasures forevermore. Now, earlier I spoke of the, the contrast between the beast and the lamb, between the inhabitants of the earth and the saints in heaven, as well as the saints who are bound for heaven. That's us if we are Christian. Dennis Johnson said, either people bear the name of the lamb and his father, finding safety in their ownership, or people are claimed by the world system that opposes the Lord and his Christ, a system that is destined to be shattered like pottery when the sun appears. You're on one side or the other. So I ask you this morning, young people, children, adults, which side are you on? Are you one who seeks to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he leads? Are you seeking to be devoted to Christ solely as his purchased possession? Or are you flirting with the world? Now you may say, Pastor, I'm not whole hog going after the pleasures of this world. I'm just keeping my options open. Gentlemen, if your wife comes home and says to you, there's this guy that I know. We're not doing anything bad, but I'm keeping my options open. Really? Seriously? And you want me to call you a faithful wife? Are you kidding? No, there are no options to keep open. If we're Christ, we're his exclusively. And if you're flirting with the world, it's because the seeds of spiritual adultery are are, are sprouting in your heart. You may be subtly convinced that the pleasures of this world is what's really going to satisfy. You may be seduced by the promises of fulfillment that the world holds out to you. They're lies. You can't play both sides of the fence. You're either in this yard or you're in that yard. You're either in or you're out. In in Psalm 16, verse 11, David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you're looking for life and fullness of joy and pleasure, according to what the world can give, you're flirting with the world. And you're in serious danger. If you're indulging in the folly that Jeremiah describes in chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's bad enough. But now they've also dug out or hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Investing their lives in something that will always leave them empty and dry, disappointed, and ultimately destroyed. Everything the world can offer you, hear me. If you're feeling that tug and you're tempted to flirt with the world, the only thing this world can offer you truly is disappointment, a broken cistern that leaks. There may be some fun, some enjoyment for a time, but it will not last. 
and the crushing wrath of God will cause everyone under it to say, why was I such a fool? Why did I not listen? Why did I not hear? Why did I go after these silly, foolish, empty promises? These redeemed saints that are described in chapter 14, they're pure. They're, they're, they're devoted wholly to their God. They're blameless. They did not make themselves that way. Not one Christian in this room has made ourselves holy or blameless. We cannot change ourselves any more than a leopard, a leopard can change his spots. These are redeemed saints. They've, they've been delivered from their wandering and their adulteries. Just like every Christian in this room has been, he will engrave, he has engraved his name on our foreheads. And hear me, he'll do that for you too. If you run to Christ, if you turn from going your own way and you ask the Lord, forgive me for my sins, forgive me for my folly, forgive me for believing the lies of the beast, those beastly lies, Revelation doesn't doesn't mess around. It paints black and white in stark contrast. The enemy is subtle and seductive. But when you pull the veil back and you see the truth, there's nothing subtle about it. So if you are not in Christ this morning, he calls you now. In fact, look with me in chapter 14, verse 6. This is next week, but I want you to just look at this. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. The earth dwellers are unbelievers. And this angel's proclaiming the gospel to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. He's saying it's not too late. Judgment has not come yet. We go further down in the chapter, and we do see the harvest, first of the saints, and then of the unbelievers, and the grapes of God's wrath runs deep. But there's time. There's good news to all who will run to Christ. These saints were delivered from their wanderings, and you may be too. I want to urge you, don't flirt with the world. Don't continue in spiritual adultery. Don't intentionally cling to your blindness. Flee to Christ. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will call you his own. He will engrave his precious name on your forehead, and he will rejoice over you with loud singing, the scriptures tell us. In just a moment, we're going to close with one of my favorite hymns, The Sands of Time. Sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven waits. But the second verse is so sweet. Listen to this. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. We don't, we come to Mount Zion and we could see him. We don't have to see a veil guiding or or preventing us from entering the Holy of Holies. Without a veil is seen in his beauty. It were a well-spent journey. Those seven deaths lay in between. The glory of heaven far outweighs present suffering. The Lamb with his fair army. That's where I got my title from, if you were wondering. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I am looking forward to that. I hope you are. 
and I hope the hope of glory forever and ever fires your soul as you slog through the challenges that we have to deal with in this life. If you're a Christian, you're part of that fair army. One day, his work will be complete. We'll see him face to face, and we will be with him forever. Amen.